Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Notes from the Alef. Alef's a high point from which we all things are visible, and from our vantage point, we'll be looking at tabletop role-playing games, their design, and the theory behind those designs. Around here, our motto is be fair, build up, and have fun. I'm your host, Griffin Bro, joined by our editor, Theta, our local designer, Norman Rafferty, and our good friend and GM, Red Rabbit. When it comes to tabletop games, I have 15 years of experience running, playing, and frequently fixing problematic rule sets at the table. Pronouns can be he, him, or they, them. Red, go. All right, you can call me Red Rabbit. I'm a professional GM who is currently running our Wednesday game of, uh, what is it? It's Iron Claw, second edition. I'm also running games of Vampire the Masquerade, fifth edition, and Dungeons and Dragons. And I like to consider myself a student of narrative and game design. And Rafferty. Hello, world. I'm Norman Rafferty, he, him, Sanguine Games. Uh, I like to consider myself a teacher. Wow. <laughs> uh, and I've worked at Sanguine Games, uh, founding member for the last 20 years or so. Uh, we publish Iron Claw and Farfong and Madcap and Vital Hearts and a whole bunch of other games that you may not have heard of. So thank you for your support. Yep. And when it comes to support, let's take a look at our big list of rants for today. So. Uh, I'm sure we've all kind of been obsessed with something and wanted to share it uh, and share that obsessive interest with others, only to kind of not quite get that same level of interest back. This feeling, I think, exists definitely for every player background that has ever been written and almost certainly includes NPC backgrounds for the GM as well. Many of us at the table can and do focus on these backstories, character projects, and other ideas and often kind of forget that there's a shared table in front of us where other people need uh, to have some attention to. Uh, this isn't to say people are selfish, but that this focus is something that we should all look at and consider how do we design around how players invest in their own ideas, or should we? Uh, Rafferty, what do you got on this? Oh, wow. Uh, I have strong opinion. Um, my advice has always been for the GM. The short advice for GMs is you are playing to lose. The idea here is that you know, like like everyone would agree that at some level the game is a power fantasy. You can't grab a sword and stab people in real life more than three times. Um, yeah, maybe four if you're really fast. I don't know. If you're really, I mean, yeah, who is that? Um, I know every day it becomes so. Yeah, so it's difficult to you know like so people come to the game and at some level they want to to feel validated. They want to feel like they're an exciting vampire lord or uh, a cute short stack cobbled or whatever it is that you know makes you happy. Uh, and the if you show up at the table and you're constantly hitting your head against a wall, uh, you know, or constantly getting killed, a lot of old school games, like like the 80s, they used to sell the games that way. They had the, I always point out, like the demos of how to play, you'd see players dying. Here's the tutorial. These players died in the tutorial. So um, your goal is to, uh, you know, the players should be making progress so you should expect your villains to lose. I, you know, they didn't like Hasbro didn't publish the Tyrant Queen adventures expecting Tiamat to just win and stomp all over you. As uh, the GM shows up with unlimited power, they have the ability to generate as many NPCs as they they dictate what the map looks like. Players don't get to do that, uh, and they can even cheat. Uh, every, well, every book ever written says the GM, well, one exception, says the GM gets to cheat. And break the rules uh, whenever it's more narratively appropriate. So on this end, you're supposed to be entertaining the players. You're supposed to make it difficult, but at the end, you have to lose and make it look good. And that is a challenge because you know it's the sometimes GMs get obsessed with am I making it a challenge 
you know, the player is feeling really, and really, you know, if the players keep showing up and talking about how great your game is, you are challenging them. So it's a lot easier than you might think it is. And and so, um, you know, I can talk a little bit more about like some of the bad design that I've seen, but, but that's the real perspective I would take that that's your goal. Right. Mm. Inevitably, there's sort of a practice here of the ephemeral where it's like, yes, you're going to create something and then watch everyone else destroy it and it will be no more. That's the way it is. And, you know, that that's not something every person definitely has a great reaction to, especially if they've put a lot of effort into it. Yeah. Want a particular thing to happen. And that leads back into railroading sort of behavior, linearity. And like, well, you, you can't break into it because then I don't get to show you the cool thing I worked on. Yeah. Um, and it's an interesting problem because I think that like with all of these games, you start playing them when by yourself you know you start playing them when you buy the book and you're reading through the book and you're coming up with all of these ideas right everyone who sits down at the table well, maybe not everyone but i think most people the people who are organizing the games probably have spent a lot of time thinking about the games before they got to the table and that's where uh you get into this i think that's where these uh you start to fall in love with these ideas right and so it's a very seductive thing and i don't think it's just for game masters either i think that players also I don't want to, it might be controversial to say this. I don't want to say that it's a bad thing when a player has like, you know, an extensive backstory for their character, but sometimes those can get in the way as well. Sometimes those, um, you can, you can front load a character with so much history and detail that they're kind of static, you know, they can't have an arc. They can't really change or adapt to a situation because you've already so thoroughly defined them in your mind and then, you know, you get into situations where, like, my character can't go on this adventure because of their crippling fear of water. They're just going to stay home and not go on the boat. <laughs> Which, you know, maybe not isn't a problem for everybody. But, like, yeah, I think it's something that can happen um, to people on both sides of the of the GM screen. Oh, yeah, that's right, definitely, definitely. Yeah, definitely that's happened because, uh, I mean, people joke about how you're all murder tourists in the game. But, um, like, one of the classic games, Tune, first edition by Steve Jackson had a second where I said, make your character. And here's a section where you write down beliefs and goals. And they had like some advice I wish more games had, which they said, okay, make sure that when you write down your beliefs and goals, that you can go on adventures. Like mm -hmm. for example, if you're a policeman, write down, get the bad guys there. You can, that's a belief and goal. You can do that, but don't write, stay here and guard the prisoners in the jail. That would not be a good goal because you wouldn't be allowed to leave the jail to go on adventures. And yeah. like, th that seems like the most obvious advice in the world but then you you would get to later generation games like your mutants and masterminds or your groups or your champions that would have all these like disadvantages listed in them and it's like you could write down i have you know i'll take crippling fear of water it gives me 20 extra points for my character and now when it's time to go on an adventure i'm supposed to tell everybody uh sorry i got 20 extra points to not have fun to yeah right yeah. at least That's some of those like have built in like hey this is supposed to be like a narrative tool you encounter the thing that is your adversary and ad adversity ah, i cannot say words adversary you're supposed to overcome that adversity in right. some well, way and get not... a reward for doing so but I, I that's not how it goes yeah i can think of parts of modern games to do that but that's a little mm. bit of a tangent here um because yeah there'll be some players who have impenetrable uh, yeah, I've had players who show. Ever seen the players show up with the folder? Mm -hmm, yeah, 
Oh gosh, yeah. I've seen a few people show up with uh, light novels. Uh, yeah. Well, the opposite side of this is is the danger when the GM shows up and the GM oh, shows yeah. up with the characters that they really love. Because once again, like you said, like the player, I'll take this from the opposite tack. It's not just that, or similar tack. It's not just that players want to like get obsessed with their characters. Some of them get obsessed about rules. I mean, these games mm. have hundreds of pages of rules. So mm. someone, you know, a player might have decided they want to do some cool thing like D&D 3 had the whirlwind attack, you know, or, you know, I really want to cast fireball so I can't get to fifth level fast enough. But um, it's even worse when you see GMs do it because like the GM will go, and now I'll impress all the players with how I built an NPC wizard who has all these five feet stacked on top of each other to do something that they've never heard of. And that that can often fall flat because you'll get some players who are jealous. It's like, I didn't know I could build that. You'll get some players who have never learned the rules. So all this impressive rules juggling just goes way over their heads. They just know they're getting blasted. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it goes back to playing to lose. It's like, yeah, if you're the GM, you know, the players have been playing the game and been doing what's now and what's in their face and what's interesting to them. If you went through the book, you know, like a Spoonie and bought all the really cool stuff and, you know, came here specifically designed to destroy everybody, well, of course you're going to do that. You had access to everything and, you know, and if this NPC dies, you can just make another one that ha- is even more optimized than the last. And that's and a you can cheat also. I mean, once again, yeah. like you're not beholden to the exact same. My Elminster has invulnerability to all of your spells. Uh, you came just for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even talking about that. Like, I'm talking about there might be GM. I mean, yeah, the GM could even cheat to make it. But also, there is a problem where GMs run into that. That yeah. that was a weird problem in old school gaming. But um, it, it is still a problem today. I've noticed that, uh, you know, because... A GM is someone who's highly motivated to play the game, probably really like the rules, so they would really want to show off here's something you could do with the rules. But uh, if you over, um, yeah, if you just overwhelm the players with it, uh, you, yeah. you we go back to playing to lose. It has to feel like a conflict. You're not not I had infinite resources and I paid to win. Yeah, I mean the the other part of that thing too is that a lot of the work or a lot of the mechanics of the character probably won't be super obvious to the players unless they're being used on the players which gives the gm an impetus to use their crazy combos to just destroy people you know uh, otherwise it's just like oh yeah this is a wizard who's you know we know is pretty good or pretty powerful but until we see those you know those mechanics in action they're just it's just another description so it's almost like oh to show all of to show off this thing that I made, I kind of have to do it at your expense. Or then you just yeah. show them the character sheet after after the fact. And people go like, huh, I wonder why you put so much effort into this thing that actually, you know, you could have spent that time, I don't know, adding a few more interesting rooms to this dungeon or something. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's a tricky one. Yeah, um, I mean, it. it, it um, we're talking about the bad way of doing it. Like in theory, there could be the puzzle boss. There could be the guy yeah, who shows yeah. up with a weird combination of abilities that once the players figure that out, it's like, okay, we know his strengths and his weaknesses because we know the rules, so we know what they're doing. But that's what yeah. you might lose. They have to have that weak point for massive damage. They have to have the telegraphed attack because if if we as players can't do anything about it, like it's so amazing and cool, but we don't have any abilities that can adapt to it, then we're just hosed uh, or oh, yeah. or it goes back to hammer theory, which is like, if we can't adapt to it or make sense of it, 
we're just going to hit them with swords. That's what we always do. So we're not exactly. Yeah. We're not all that impressed. Somebody showed up who could do something I couldn't. Okay. Well, we hit them with swords like we did with the goblins outside. Um, right. right. So, so the trick here is, is that you would have to set something up that's really cool, but also it has to have some exploit or some way to get around it. Otherwise you're just, you know, you're just punching down. Yeah. And probably, I mean, because you're right, that is a really cool notion to think about the puzzle, <laughs> the puzzle boss. But, you know, for it to work, for it to function, right, the only thing that's going to matter is what your party ends up deciding to do. So going back to Hammer Theory, it's most likely they will default to hitting it with sticks and swords. But also, right. like, you know, in the case where you design this thing that is going to be unstoppable unless you can find the weakness, well, then your party's going to get stomped if they don't find that weakness. You've created that choke point in your in your adventure. And mm. even though it seems cool, you realize, wow, I kind of have to let them solve this puzzle. I have to kind of give this one to them because if I don't, they lose. There's no other way around it. So it's, Right, and that kind of goes yeah. back into the whole, you know, uh, guiding people through mysteries and failing forward and failing stuff. forward, right? Yeah, and, and I do think there's at least like a couple of things that definitely help kind of pull that off. And uh, there's probably a couple ways you can do it. The the puzzle boss has definitely been on my mind for a while. Like how to design yeah. that, how to make something interesting, because you see it a lot in media. Like a standout example would be any JoJo episode where they have a mysterious <laughs> character where if they don't know what they do they'll just get one hit and die. And so they spend most of the episode figuring out how it works and then overcome that. Yeah. Yeah. And that works in something like Jojo because they have flexible interpretable powers. Mm -hmm. If you're playing a game like Dungeons and Dragons, they have beat all uh, interpretation out of it. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, you're going to have to be a little more subtle. I, I think there's some Pathfinder adventures that do it. Like, I remember there was one exploring adventure where you can go to this place and meet this invulnerable bear monster. And it's invulnerable. You can't hurt it. You'll figure out after a few minutes having it. But you could also, yeah. and I know this is hard for some players, you could just leave, which is, you know, what my party did. But like, <laughs> well, okay, we can't kill it. It doesn't seem to have any treasure. Time to leave. Um, and, and then maybe somewhere else there's a hint to, to figure out how to get rid of it because it's a large map to explore. And that's cool. If you can like reinforce that, I mean, I, I do have to add here that like, once again, that's not using the rules. There's no creature in D&D &D that just isn't vulnerable to anything. So they just yeah. made up that rule just so it would happen. But the important thing was it was communicated to us. It was like the GM said, okay, it looks like you're not hurting it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and um, communication is, of that is very important. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. And uh, um, it was a rational reason. We went to the place everyone told us not to go, and there was something there that we couldn't defeat. Story checks out. Yeah. I can tell you, because I'm, I'm thinking through this now, and I think it actually ties back to our main topic. So I'm going to I'm gonna go through this little flight of fantasy now. So I was, because I was thinking like, okay, how would I do this in a way that, that could work and would be satisfying? And the way I would do it, right, is create a boss that would be difficult, but beatable by conventional means, and then give them a weakness, you know, the the clever, the puzzle solution. And then because a lot of this has to be, uh, it's hard to like, hard to um, telegraph this stuff mid-fight in a lot of these things. If you want it to be a puzzle that is solvable, you would have to have the give the players an opportunity to explore that when they're not fearing for their lives. So I would seed in the dungeon, let's say, right? In the lead-up adventure, I would put a bunch of optional rewards in there that would be hints or would be, uh, you know, clues to this secret way of defeating this boss, right? Totally missable. 
That way, if they miss the clues, they still have a boss that they have a chance of beating. It's just a normal boss. If they find the clues, they have this cool, clever thing where they say, ah, we figured this out. And then they get to beat it with the trick, which would be very satisfying. Um, But I think that if they didn't beat it with the trick, it would be a bummer and it would make a lot of that prep time that I put into it feel like a waste. And that's the risk that you take, you know, with a lot of this stuff. But I think that could also tie into this idea of killing your babies, killing your darlings. Is this this thing that like sometimes the prep that you do to make something that is workable, it needs to work either way. And sometimes you have to be willing to let (laughs) to let it go to like to set something up that could be really cool if it works, but you have to accept that it probably won't. Statistically speaking, it's an outside chance and it still needs to be a fun game for everyone involved. Oh, yeah. Right. And there's definitely constraints within the system of like how how to make that work. If your system does not have investigative tools on hand, then or if it's just a pass fail kind of role, it's like, well, I guess the players, you know, just kind of failed their roles. They didn't get the clues and now they just kind of fail. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, any third edition got rid of uh, sorry, any fifth got rid of any gather information abilities. They're not there anymore. It yeah, did. Um, so, um, yeah. Well, because speaking of that, like, like as usual, there's something that was a good idea in old school that they completely ruined. Mm-hmm. Um, there used to be like some dungeons. If you read them, like Village of Hamlet or Tel- Temple of Elemental Evil or uh, Exp- not Expedition there, um, keeping the Borderlands. I can't believe I forgot that name. I'm getting older. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They had a tavern, and they would have a, a sage in it called the Tavern Rumors, where if you hung around for a while, the GM would roll stuff, and you might hear something. Like, I heard Briark is cobbled for surrender, or they say that there's a treasure in there, but it's guarded by a Gorgon. Oh, um, yeah. Stuff like that. And those are always cool ideas. You know, and, like, that sounds kind of neat that you can get hints, and you see that in JRPGs, where you wander around and talk to everybody in the village. Except you may notice that when you talk to everybody in the JRPG village, they have two things to say. Pointless things or useful advice. You get to the old school adventures and they have a third thing where they just say things that are blatantly false. Like, Briark is not cobbled for surrender. In fact, it's a big joke that Briark is cobbled for um, let's attack. So uh, some people are putting in comments saying, well, it's actually something else, but it's not surrender. Uh, and, And so it's like... The players have no way of knowing what's true and what's false. So giving right. them false rumors was just a waste of their time. And I can see why this disappeared because it was a huge section in the book that nobody cared about. Veteran adventurers like me would make a note of them, but we were going to hit the cobbles with swords anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, e- even if they surrendered. So, um, the uh, the idea behind these rumors uh, is they were supposed to give advice. I mean, the big colossal one is I, I keep seeing apologists for Tomb of Horrors. In theory, Ooh. the Tomb of Horrors adventure, if there was a phase where you could do research on it, would be way more interesting. Like when you hear that, oh yeah, the lich that was in there was doing research in extraplanar activities and discovered a way to make doors that vaporize you or teleport you to other worlds or voids of blackness if you just had that hint before you went there and then later hey look it's a hole in the wall that apparently is a dark void of nothingness you know i heard a rumor before we got here that that really is a bunch of nothing yeah that's that's a good one yeah or i heard a rumor that there's a statue in here that if you bring 10 black opals will reward you with something because that, 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 that's one of the things in Tomb of Horrors, the statue that you, it has to crush nine, but you have to have brought ten 
black opals and it will give you a gem of seeing as a reward. There's no way to know any. How would you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's nothing to forewarn them. Like, this is how the universe works, or this is how this particular dungeon or adventure works. You just guess. Right now, you just theory, have ten opals on you for some reason. Right, and Tomb of Horrors pointedly admit omits probably because it was a convention adventure, so they're in a hurry. Like people forget that that this was like get a bunch of strangers together and go. Um, that it was supposed, you know, to have a tavern phase of gathering rumors. So if you gather rumors, you might get that hint. And then you have to find somebody to get 10 black opals or something. And everybody laughs at you for doing that. But like, if it had that phase built into its narrative structure, it would be there. But that problem is that disappeared. And so in a lot of modern D&D adventures, the game just assumes you won't be puzzle boss or solving anything. That you'll just blunder from encounter to encounter. And yeah. uh, I really want to see them bring that back of that kind of challenge of, rewarding the players for learning about the world and and telling them the weaknesses in advance so they can prepare for them. Yeah, yeah. and I think it's like you maybe you mentioned before that's a lot of these are like set up as expeditions and that's not really the way that they're viewed anymore. There is no preparation phase anymore for anything. You uh-huh. do just kind of walk straight into it, which makes it hard to kind of mix things up. So so mm-hmm. we're slowly building a list of like tools on the table here to kind of like make things more interesting. Yeah, in fact, in fact there's one amazing thing I want to talk about, which is uh, Monster Hunter. Have you played the Monster Hunter video game? I have yeah. seen a bit of it. Okay, so they're fascinating to me because the way they work is you start, you know, like you go to the quest board and they say, hey, we've sighted a giant monster out there. If only we knew some crazed adventurer who would want to go kill it. And like, I'm uh, so <laughs> you get a prep phase where you get to go ahead and buy stuff, mostly like bombs and special things. I'm sure the monster hunter deep divers will talk, but you kit out your gear, some of which you got on previous expeditions. You get a buddy, like a palico or a palamute, you get like a cat or a dog, which have some abilities you have to decide like, do they get minor offense? Do they get defense? Whatever. So you get henchmen, and then you set off to go kill this monster. And you might know stuff about it. Maybe you cheated, read the wiki because you're that kind of person. Uh, but you um, you have to go get it. On the way there, there are side quests to distract you because it's like, hey, some random guy will say, hey, if you go grab these herbs for me, I'll give you some money. But of course, you only have 40 minutes to finish this adventure. So do you want to waste 20 minutes doing my crap? It's like, hmm, I'll get paid if I do your crap. And that invokes that sort of old school playing. And, and now we're back into, uh, like, Monster Hunter has solved one of the issues of playing to lose. We expect you to go defeat the monster. We, it's not going to kill you because it's a video game. No one perma-dies. Um, but we expect you to kill the monster, but we're putting these obstacles in your way to get there. And there'll also be phases where you can learn more about it or track it to its lair or observe its behavior or that sort of thing uh, on the way there. So th- this is a, a great example of playing to lose. We expect you to kill the monster. But we've put things in your way that if you choose to make these risks, you know, they might offset your rewards that choices you make on the way there offset you. So it's a great example of playing to lose, but there's still a cool encounter. It's still challenging. And it's not I have to kill the PCs to impress them. Um, We expect you to kill everything. But how much can you get done in the 40 minute time? Oh, and also there's a time limit. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> we talked about time loads before too. Yeah, at that um, point, it's an it's an economy of time and is sort of in that thriller segment of stuff. The the clock's ticking. Can you solve the mystery? Can you rescue the president's daughter? Kind of thing. Right? There's there's stakes, but it's not just crushing the players by being with overwhelming force. It's 
mm-hmm. makes the players feel like we were supposed to do something in a certain amount of time. Yeah, well, that's the thing, really, is like there needs to be stakes that there needs to be fail cases that are not total party kills. There needs to be like, um, you know, degrees of success as well. That's where I think that's where the game gets interesting. If not for the players, I think it does make it interesting for the players, but certainly for the the GM, I think, right, too. Like you're pointing out this this notion and it seems like it's a reaction to the whole uh you know, GM as adversary mindset, which I think is something that we've mostly gone, uh, gotten away from in terms of, well, I would say in modern gaming, I feel like there, that sentiment is, uh, pointed to as an example of bad game behavior these days. But, um, but the other thing too, is it's not just about, uh, necessarily, it's not just about like, hey, don't try to kill your players or your player characters, right? Definitely don't kill your players. Please don't kill your your PCs unjustly. But more like, um, I think part of the intrigue and the interest as a GM is uh, creating challenges and seeing what they do and don't accomplish, like seeing how well they succeed or how badly they fail. And so you need to be able to construct the game with that spectrum in mind, because that is fun. You can still relish in your players stumbling into a trap. I don't think that's necessarily bad gameplay. If they stumble into a trap that instantly kills all of them, and then you cackle with glee as at their like cries of pity that their favorite character died, then yes, then there's something wrong there going on. But uh, yeah, I was making fun of that when we were doing uh, Wicked Ones, where I said, okay, let's make a trap that is impossible physics. I know spikes on the ceiling, reverse gravity. Classic. Like, how are you? Yeah, like it killed so many people though. It was it really did, but but it's also like you know, okay, how are we supposed to plan for a violation of everything we know? Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. No. In, in fact, r- related to that is okay. One thing that I that I always complain about that disappeared from the gaming uh, is the idea of self preservation. The idea that the bad guys that you were confronting um, don't want to die. Yeah. And um uh the the idea that you might show up with overwhelming force and break a line. Like like uh, older games might say okay if if half the cobbles in this room die the other one flee. You know, simple things that were like well, that's one sentence and it's simple to understand. Um and it's also a way to make the forces look more impressive than they are. Like you know, you walk in the room and there's 40 goblins, but you only have to defeat 20 of them. If you can do that, the rest will run away. Um, mm-hmm. um and, and that's what I mean by playing to lose. It's like they might say, This is not worth our lives, let's get out of here. The idea that you can yeah. negotiate with them or or can. But um, I guess related to playing to lose is there's there's a thing that that I think doesn't show it shows up in the stories, like your JoJo's, but doesn't show up in uh the um the gaming. And that's the idea of NPCs who are completely out of their league but don't know it. Hmm. Because like like mm-hmm. often GMs will get obsessed with the idea that well this encounter has to be a challenge like I can see it's written here there's only four cobbles in this room you know with swords but that doesn't sound challenging I'll change it to eight with slings there now it's challenging okay that's you can do that but basically it's like through you players um oh, in, yeah. in, instead what can be satisfying is to have a few encounters where you have like four cobbles with swords and when they see the adventurers they go all right, that's it. All of you are going to die because we're so amazing. And you guys are like, are just some random people. We've killed so many adventures before you we will kill you now. And it's like, they run up and you smack them and go, this guy had AC 11 and three hit points. What was on, what was he thinking? 
<laughs> right, there there do occasionally need to be moments where the players get to feel a little bit of their heroism, right? Especially right. in the um, not simulationist vein, in the exceptionalist vein. Well, even even in simulation, because everyone's always the hero of their own story. It's like you know, if a guy's already survived, he doesn't know you're a level three or eight adventurer. He and according to the rules, he doesn't know you have a plus two sword. <laughs> he just knows you have a nice one. Now look nice on my wall. Um, you know, he doesn't know that you have, you know, what you guys are until they run at you. And, um, and the, the idea, the idea of a boat, like this gets into, I think a mental problem a lot of GMs have that you can't have an NPC boasting about how great they are when, when you, the GM know they suck. Why would they boast about how great they are? I can see their numbers are terrible. And the answer mm -hmm. is not everyone knows that. Mm -hmm. And, and, yeah. and NPCs that, you know. Um, a, a fond thing I read in a story once was that, you know, a war starts when someone drastically overestimates their chances of winning. Um, because yeah. like those guys who came at you, you know, were here to loot you when you unleash the fireball and kill half of them with a single spell, you know, some of the other half might say, well, look at the time. Uh, no one can say we didn't and then run away. Uh, and, and that can make your players feel like a badass and make the world feel really real. And it's still somewhat challenging because if the Cobbleds had won that surprise round, this would be a different story. Yeah. Right. I do think it falls flat occasionally, though, because players will engage with a lot of this in the same manner. They will run straight into it. Like we said, like the NPCs have some idea of like wanting to survive players don't even if they want to live they will act against their survival instinct uh and i think you can see this in a lot of DD play where the optimal choice of course is everyone stay in the fight stay in the fight until the very end you will win anyway yeah well so it, yeah. it's hard to really get a different reaction because everyone is going to boast about how powerful they are and it's not until you start hitting them that you know maybe you care well, I, I I don't think it helps that modern man say something. I mean, how can I phrase it there? Modern <laughs> gaming is a lot more forgiving. Previous, mm -hmm. like if you look at older versions of Dungeons and Dragons, there were time limits on resurrection. Uh, there was a chance it might not work, and there was an experience point penalty. As time went on, they lowered the experience point penalty down to yeah. zero. They lowered the random chance it might fail to always works. So, uh, and then you play the computer games and like, I, I can never get over this. So there's this computer game where you have infinite lives and every time you get killed, you get all of your possessions back. It's called Dark Souls. Yep. <laughs> People go, oh, this game is difficult. It's like, no, it's not. You, 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 infinite lives. All of my stuff. <laughs> they don't even cover its rule. Moving on. But you could lose some of your uh, boss money and, you know, oh, no, I dropped my wallet off the side now, I guess, because I died twice. You don't even lose it. They drop it in a pile so you can go get it. Mm -hmm. It's not like like EverQuest, if you die, they took away 5% of your experience. Dark Souls, mm -hmm. we left this here just for you. Mm -hmm. There you go. Uh, and you can do that an infinite number of... Moving on. Uh, Moving on. Like, basically... Players now, ex I, I really think that players now expect to always fail forward and always win. Like they've played the computer game, and D and D gives you the free resin. And I've already complained about how, if you watch the streams, they don't, you know, they bring them back pretty easily too. So I, players expect that you can run right in there, and if you get killed, that's just something that happens. We just res you. If you haven't like beaten in, you know, if you haven't explained to your players, oh no, if you screw this up, it's permadeath. 
Diablo 2 is back in the news. Does anyone remember when Diablo 3 had to have that huge disclaimer that said if you choose Iron Man and your character dies, do not call tech support? <laughs> Especially don't call them if the always-on servers disconnect you. Well, but I'm talking, yeah, that's a different, but I'm talking about like, like literally they had to have that disclaimer from Iron Man. Don't, if you're, if you choose this mode, it's permadeath, don't call. And then there are still cases of people calling tech support trying to get the characters. Well, yeah, of course. So, I mean, so, so it, it, like, you know, back in the 80s, this wasn't a thing. Yeah. And, and okay. I'm not, well, I just want to say, I'm not saying it's necessarily bad. I'm saying this is what people expect. This is what your players expect. So either you tell yeah. them not to expect it or you roll with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. know, and I feel like this comes from a uh, from that the two kinds of play again, like the at home preparation play versus the at the table play. And I think they they found out that a lot of people who played these games a lot got very invested in them in in the well in the character building part, and they freshed right. that out for better or ill, right? And then they wrote twenty pages of backstory, right? I mean, that's the thing is that. For a lot of people, that is fun. Like, a lot of people, you know, a lot more people own these books than play these games. For a lot of people, like, the act of playing RPGs at the table is something aspirational. You know, they love the idea of it, but it's not something that they ever had the time or the inclination to do. And maybe they watch actual plays and stuff. But that's, like, real fun that you can kind of have solo And it's validated by this, like, at-the-table play. But I think that's where the danger of this whole thing comes from, right? Uh, You get to this point where you get very, very invested when when you're building these characters or when you're building these adventures. There's no one else that you have to, that you need validation from. You can just make the coolest thing that comes into your mind. And then all of a sudden you're thrown into a circumstance where you do need to explain your decisions and you do need to. And there's a chance that the thing that you made that you spent hours, weeks creating could very well be disrupted by other people playing a game, whether that's the character you made who gets eaten by the Tarrasque or if it's the, you know, multi-level dungeon that gets uh, pass walled through into right into the boss chamber. And that can be feel very personal. Um, but I, I also I, think I just want to interject here real quick. Uh-huh. Or you're supposed to be really like sneaky and persuasive. And the very first time you try to make that role, you roll a one in front of everybody. Oh, sure. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Um, fate <clears throat> is interrupting my my fan fiction or my OC. Um, but I also think the probably where this comes from is the fact that these games uh, want people to get that invested and they uh, encourage people to do so. And they don't always encourage people to to plan the way that I think they should for optimal fun at the table, which I believe is like, hey. Um, you know, you've got to build this thing with a little, uh, it, it can't be as personal as you, as you want it to be. There's a quote and I don't remember where it came from, which really sucks. I'm using it out of context, but I think it's my favorite quote. Um, someone was suggesting that you build your player characters, uh, play your player characters. Like you would drive a stolen car, right? Have fun, take chances, and don't get overly invested. And that's the best, like, method, right, for yeah, <laughs> for so playing see, at the table. I was with you, like, until there. Like, like you were also right when you were saying with the mixed message. Because if you told that to your vampire players, if mm-hmm. you treated your vampire players like that, they would quit your game on Moss. Because vampire is very much a role-playing 
about yes, that's true. where did you come from? Who is your sire? How did you get involved with this? What is your blood? What's your history? What motivates you? In other words, like you got the some of these games that were extremely into that. And yeah. um, you know, like we're are we're very grognar, we're very biased toward towards crunchy combat and stuff. But I don't want to discount that, that there are some games that are completely nothing about that. So your your vampire player showed up and you killed them the very first adventure. Um Vampire especially is a game that uh, I don't enjoy because I think Vampire is very much a game where you're supposed to get used to the GM introducing characters who are lower generation than you, have more uh, you know investment than you, and order you around. And a lot of those yeah. games, a lot of those seem to be meeting people who are more powerful than me who boss me around to go do something, and then maybe later I get in a fight, which is also why I didn't play Vampire because their combat system is great. So it's um. <laughs> Right, I'm I'm not meeting enough of what I already described. Yeah, I'm not I'm not meeting enough of the JoJo characters, the idiot in the bar who starts a fight with me. It's like you know the kid doesn't know I'm scary or whatever. That that kind of thing of where I lord my vampire powers or I lord my stolen car over people that I don't want to get caught with the stolen car. It's okay to drive around and win races and that kind of stuff, but you don't want to get caught. And right, um, well, all this just comes back around. Do players do not want to lose? These are their darlings, of course, but. Losing can be fun. Well, I, I think I'm, a lot of people don't feel that most of the time or understand why that can even be. I mean, I want to turn this around and say, like, we made the game far flung. The company made the game far flung where we said, You are an omnipotent person from the future. Mm -hmm. Okay, how is this fun? You can't Good die. Question. Mm -hmm. You can do whatever you want. How is this fun? And that's where we took playing to lose, which is okay, here's the deal. There are things, there are ways you can lose even when you have infinite power. Because you could you could make the wrong choice. You could be mm -hmm. at the wrong place at the wrong time. You could apply overwhelming force to someone who you shouldn't have because other people can die. That was one of our big influences. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm glad we got folks like Matt Howarth involved who write stories like this, which is where it was just like, you know, it, it, it's like, I don't like Rick and Morty is the best example I can invoke stuff because, you know, Rick and Morty, if they die, would just get another one from another reality or whatever. So how are these stories interesting? Well, they're five seasons worth. It's like showing off that just because, right. you know, the question of what your choices do in those sorts of things. And they still, those worlds are still filled with interesting characters and fun people to interact with and memorable stuff. It's the trick mm -hmm. here is um, uh, it, it's what the uh, building on what the players do. Speaking of our mottos, you build on what the players do. And if the players make fateful choices or incorrect choices, you have those steering the adventure. In yeah. order for all this to work, the players have to have some sort of objective. Instead of just throwing nothing at them, the players have to have something they want to do. You as the GM have to know what it is. And then there have to be choices they have to make to take them closer or further away. And, mm -hmm. and instead of always the NPCs get an upper hand and destroy you, it's the players have a goal and what's going on either takes them closer or further away. Uh, and that's what should, should always be your focus. What's going on. That's my hmm. thesis for all of them. I have a response. Um, cause I, I always feel called out when you attack my vampire. I don't know why it's become my vampire game. Great. I mean, I feel bad cause I know, I know people enjoy it. I, I know, but I'm always talking about like what keeps me out of it. Oh no, that and that's fair. That's we're just we're having a friendly conversation here. Um, I think what's interesting though is that, um, well, first of all, I've been trying to 
correlate my actual plays for this thing into a podcast for months now and i am it's just extra work that i don't have time for during the week i'm very curious to see what people think of my particular vampire game because i i came to it with very little outside experience um and you know based on the rules written i can i can visualize every time you mention vampire wrath i can visualize the vampire game that you played in and it does not sound like fun and it also does not sound like how a game that i would want to play either there's no bad game <laughs> just games i don't show up at. games you don't show up to right um yeah, yeah, but yeah, so I think when you were saying that, though, it made me think of something else, uh, another great little allegory, maybe, or metaphor for how I frame the player loss um, mentally for me, which is like, it's like gambling, you know, you've created this thing, this character, that's your money that you come with, and dying is busting out, and we can all agree that that's not fun, if for no other reason than it stops you from continuing to play the game, and that really is the worst. But you do go gambling expecting that you're probably going to lose, that your pile is going to change, and you hope that it's going to change for the better, that you'll leave with more money than you came with, but you don't really know, and therein lies that excitement, which I guess well, goes I, back to what you were saying. I, I want to flip that around because I think, I, I think, I think you have a, a good metaphor, but you actually, like, you're going with the theory of, I started with something and I don't want to lose it. And I'm mm. saying that what we need to do is, no, no, gambling is about, I want to get something huge. Yeah, that's why people keep gambling even when their pot is done. See, uh, yeah. a lot of uh, I'm, I'm I'm arguing that the issue here is that you know players are taught this is your little pile of hit points, and if they go away, your character gets killed. And I'm saying if you really want to engage players and give them the feeling of loss without the risk of destroying all of their money, without the risk of destroying them, you have uh -huh. to get the players to hope for a giant jackpot and make them believe exactly. that that big gamble will pay off. And then the way players can lose is they don't get the jackpot. Instead of ruining their lives and ruining their character, <laughs> instead, they lost out on the prize. And that, I think, is what we should be focusing on almost all of our role-playing games, because that, it's easier, and it's better for a long-term campaign. You can only kill the players once. You can only destroy yeah. them once. So, you know, that's actually really great. Um, because that is not how I was thinking about it, but you're right. That's probably a really good positive way to think about it and could fit in with like, hey, if you're not investing overly much, if you're coming to this game with a small pot, then you, you know, you have a chance to grow your money. You have a chance to uh, leave with more than you came with. And that's, that's great. I will yeah, say I that the way I was thinking about it was definitely more along the evil GM lines of there are so many things worse than worse than death. There's uh -oh. so many ways that I can that I can make your lives more complicated and more dramatic that have nothing to do with killing you. And in fact, in, in Vampire, I guess much like D&D, it's a game that makes it pretty hard to kill characters Um I mean, vampires themselves are undead. There's torpor. Even when they're dead, they're probably not dead unless other conditions are met too. So it got read really, really hard. And, and yeah, even, right. And, even and that's, that, but that's not what not, the game has ever been about, right? It's the not game even is about, about that. yeah, yeah. The game is about the horrible things that happen to you along the way. <laughs> Or about the horrible things that are happening to other people that we might want to stop it. Like we don't want other clans moving in on our turf. We don't sure. want monsters eating people. That's blood that I'm not getting. Or um, the horrible things you do to get the things that you want. Uh, or, or in theory, yes, the masquerade itself of I can't get caught stealing blood, which, you know, I think should be a thing that isn't. 
So, um, you know, I will say that as a criticism, as much as they point that out as a major factor in everyone's decision making, they don't really go into great detail about like the cons the mechanical consequences for it, which is something that I've been thinking about well, more and more. I've already complained. There's a section in the book that says never stop a player from feeding on blood. Let them pick their best stat and their best skill, roll it, number mm -hmm, of death, mm -hmm. how many blood points they get. GMs do not interfere. And yeah. at most they say you can use this as an impetus to get in trouble with the higher up vampires, but even like in the real world in this system, there should be consequences. For... Like, uh, yeah. like, like, like a, you know, maybe a GTA heat index of like, this is how much sure. masquerade. That's you know, actually what I did for a bit, actually. I, I ran yeah. a GTA star system for both the number of crimes they were doing, which meant the police cared, and masquerade stuff that happened, which might slowly draw attention to them. And right. that at so least got people happens. thinking and fearful of what would happen, even if they never really got the consequences that far. It, it, they didn't get is... above two stars in crime. Yeah, well, and there it, you go. So that works. Right. I mean, it is this weird paradox of we will formalize how much hit points you have, we'll formalize your death, We'll even formalize how attractive you are. Are you very attractive or just regular attractive? Two merit mm -hmm. or four merit points? We'll formalize all of that. But when it comes to social situations or that kind of stuff, most of these games fall flat. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's why um, I think, uh, um, I, I mean, like, like to compare old school and new school stuff, the King's Quest 2 game, you're supposed to kill the wizard before a timer runs. But the first few times you play the game, you might not even know there's a timer. Because nothing in the game tells you, okay, after the wizard leaves the house, you have 200 turns. If you yeah. don't kill the wizard into it, nothing informs you. There's no clock. There's no countdown, etc. That was considered bad game design. Flip this around to what I was talking about with Monster Hunter. Here's a clock in the corner that says 45 minutes. Yeah. This yeah. is it. And and because you tell the players that because it's a game. And I know like this is oversimplified, but this, this is a game. It, it's, it's like uh, yeah. telling people how they can lose. And most importantly, telling them it's okay if you lose because we won't. I won't kill you or destroy you if you lose. You can keep playing, but, but you'll be a loser. Yeah, well, and it's your it's your shame that drives me. And I, I really think we should be pushing. But in order to push for that, we have to have characters who we have to have players who care about something because well, yeah, right, that's a whole other the murder tour. I, I did want to say yeah. that like one of the reasons why people rag on um well rules lawyer, but power gamers like me. Because they always think like, oh, you don't really care about the story. You just care about the mechanics, the numbers, and that kind of stuff. You're obviously not a real role player. And I always want to, you know, that's a huge mixed message to a group of players because you're saying like, well, if your roles are bad or your build is bad, I'll kill you. But don't mm. care about that. Mm. But only a, you know, only a grognar cares about that sort of stuff. Whereas like it's so possible much. to care about both. And that's always the thing that bugs yeah. me. I, I want to, and I'm, there's even a nice dinner table story about me out there where it's like, I win the vampire encounters by spending all my willpower points at the exact right moment. Cause I was saving yeah. them. I was like, this should be a triumph. So the GM shouldn't be crapping all over it. Um, you know, but they might, we talked about that in previous stuff. It, right. My gosh, like, you got to coach people to use those points. <laughs> right. Or yeah. Or, or it's like Jojo's bizarre adventure. Like when you watch that, their is about rules lawyers. That's how they saw that's how they defeat King Griffin. It's a rules lawyer. So um uh yeah, it, it's it's that sort of thing with stakes and people winning. Uh and um well, but also like we say, killing your darlings. It's like, um we got got away with it. You're supposed to be setting the players up to care about something and yeah. then so they can have victory over it. Um and, and if you can get both of those and you've got players, if you're just here to just murder them, well, you have infinite resources to do that, and I'm glad they put challenge ratings. 
It's interesting that that's how you come at it from, because I always thought this was more of an issue of railroading. When I think about the topic, I always think about um, games that I've played in where it was very clear that the GM had written a story that they thought was very cool. Right. And as soon as the players started doing things that would mess with the ultimate reveal, you saw it kind of come off the off the hinges and you saw things get forced and roles were asked for that really didn't mean anything. And And that's where I think... For me personally, the idea of killing your babies comes from is that like, uh, I think that you need as when you're running the games, I think it's important that you build them in such a way where you understand that you're creating a setup that you're creating, you're setting a stage for something that no one person at the table will control. No one's got the script. We're going to see what happens. Um, and you can still create a game that's full of things that are interesting and fun for you, the guy who's writing it, who's putting in all of this time and work. It doesn't mean that you can't do those things, but you have to be careful that you're doing them in ways that do not limit the player's freedoms or do not prescribe the ending of the story. Well, I, 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 I would agree with you about railroading is, is bad, but you do have to channel the players somewhat. I mean, the poster child I would use for this is Tyrant Queen, the big mm-hmm. adventure of D&D where you show up and dragonborns are killing innocent people. You're supposed to side against Tiamat and with the free people uh, of the Sword Coast. Okay, I- I'm with you on that. We have to have some framing device of, we want you to fight the the, the people. I mean, even though you can be an evilly aligned character and you would throw in with evil because you're aligned with evil, you know, like that's a stupid, you know, that's a stupid decision in the game. Let's assume you were here to go ahead and fight off the Tyrant Creek. The issue I would have with the railroading is the way that's set up is it's a bunch of scripted encounters that all end exactly the same way. You can't make peace with anyone. You can't infiltrate anyone. You, there's no diplomacy. There's not even a Saruman to get involved in. Maybe there is deep in the campaign. I only got through the first you know few parts of it, but it was presented to us of go here and do this thing. And, yeah. uh, and um, you know, uh, and then that's what I've seen in the text of like Dragon Heist or whatever. The idea you go here, do a certain thing, and then go with it. And uh, it, it's presented in uh, it's presented in such a way that you can't lose. They they assume that you're going to uh, it, that you're going to win every encounter along the way. I mean, I guess you could you could die, right? There's combat encounters. Mm-hmm. We could fail every roll, right? Because if we can't yep. fail every roll and die, why are why you are wasting more time with a combat encounter? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So, so that's where we get into. Um, I, I would like to see more thought getting into the heads of the bad guys of. If they lost this battle, what would the yeah. bad guys do? If if they negotiated with you, what would they do? Like if the other guy, if the NPCs didn't get what they want, what is their compromise? Instead of the way it's always presented, which is the NPCs throw themselves at you on your until one of us is dead, asking no yeah. court for giving on, and everything is like that because they're evil. And, and, yeah. and yeah, we uh, it's not so much killing your darlings; it's okay to negotiate with them too. Yep. <laughs> I mean, not be cool. So yeah. What kind of final words we got here? What do you got, Red? Oh, so many final words. I'm not ready to end, but I'll <laughs> I'll try to sum it up. Um, I do think that uh, okay, I do think that one of the primary objectives for a GM is to set the table, right? You do need to bring something like Rafferty said, you do need to be able to present some something for the players to care about, some drama for them to become involved in. Um, but you also need to be ready to uh, throw out the story that you had in mind for the story at the table, right? Love the one. If you can't be with the uh, can't be with the one you love, then love the one you're with. You really need to have 
you really need to uh, dedicate yourself to the story that's happening in your group because that's the story that matters, right? And mm -hmm. when you start to realize that you start to build games in a way that prioritizes and sets up situations for that story to be the best that it can be versus, you know, the elaborate lore and history that you set up for yourself in your mind. So that's what I think about when I think about killing your darlings. And I hope that that is, uh, and that would be my, my GM recommendation. Yeah. What about you? Uh, Rafferty, um, what do you got? I have similar things. Once again, our pillars here are be fair, build up and have fun. Um, I'm very much in the simulationist camp. So I always want to caution GMs. Don't think of it as I'm supposed to make villains who hate the players and only goal is to kill the players. My, uh, the stories I like to see crafted are there's villains and they want to do something. For some reason, the players have become involved to stop them. And I've always found that the best framing network is the players are assumed to be more powerful than the villain. They have higher numbers or access to greater resources than the villains do. The villain's goal is to accomplish their thing, either despite the players or faster than the players can stop them or to distract the player. And that's mm -hmm. what I mean by killing, you know, like, 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 you don't necessarily want the villains just throw themselves at the players and the players just, you know, wipe them out. You can only kill the players once. You should be thinking in terms of like real world villains would go those meddling player characters and try to get around them or distract them or end run them. And if the players can figure out they're being distracted or the players can do their own plans, you can deal with unusual things. Like when the players try to trick NPCs or bribe them uh, or convert them to a side or anything, because you're thinking in terms of underpowered villains. You know, you're thinking in terms of Lex Luthor trying to defeat Superman. And it could be a little more challenging, but I, you know, once again, if Lex Luthor loses, nobody minds. It's like, you know, the players were the heroes they were supposed to. But that way you can make the, the if you're thinking in terms of underpowered villains who, let's face it, outnumber the players and have infinite resources because you're the GM, but are still have lower numbers. If you can be playing to lose like that, instead of trying to impress the players with, you know, making something more powerful than Superman. Doomsday doesn't impress anyone. Lex Luthor does. Mm -hmm. That's right. A very good point, actually. Yeah. Yep. And I guess the thing I would end off is that uh, anything you build as a GM is made out of sand and meant to crumble in one way or another. It may as well be fun to watch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like that too. Yeah. There you go. So uh, that's going to be all for today for Notes for the Aleph then. Uh, we stream bi-weekly, Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. You can join us live on twitch.tv slash Ractus. We also stream and record weekly tabletop games at the same channel. And you can come join us when we start at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sundays and Wednesdays. Norman Rafferty here is a partner and writer for Sanguine Games. And check out sanguinegames.com and join us on the right on Twitter. And look forward to the upcoming Book of Corals Iron Claw expansion book, where you can have your own pirate adventures. Don't forget to check out Red Rabbit and book him for a game over on startplaying.games as Red Rabbit now. Be sure to like, comment, subscribe, and we'll see you all again.